welcome to episode 468 of the Cyber Law Podcast for lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. But we're going to jam-packed panel. Uh, Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology law at Georgetown and is a senior fellow at Brookings. Nick Weaver, a crowd favorite at the International Computer Science Institute, chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies, and a lecturer at UC Davis. And he is on the market. So if you like listening to him, you could hire him to be a teacher at your institution. Rush to try to do that because there's going to be a line. Maury Shank, the London-based lawyer and top technologist. And in a special kind of insert, Andy Greenberg, a longtime Wired reporter, is going to do a contribution that I recorded before this. So we'll just stick it in as we come to it. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for the day's program. Mark, let's jump right in. The FTC is going from weakness to weakness, as far as I can see. I did a really obnoxious Cybertoons cartoon in which I compared the litigators at the FTC to the guys who are sent out into the field in Bakhmut to find mines and to get shot at so that people could geolocate the forces on the other side. But it really is kind of astonishing how bad their litigation record is starting to look. Yeah, I've always appreciated your delicate sense of humor about things. (laughs) But look, I mean, I think the ballgame does appear to be over for the global objections to the Microsoft Activision merger. It's not just the FTC, but but after a series of setbacks, it looks as though the merger is going to close probably this week. The FTC did lose its case. Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley, who's a Biden appointee, she wrote the district court opinion, and she said the FTC had been unable to prove that Microsoft would have a real incentive to withhold Call of Duty and other programs from other platforms after the merger. And so the merger would not be likely to substantially lessen competition. Now, some legal scholars, they said she got the legal standard wrong. She said... The FTC must show the merger will probably substantially lessen competition, whereas the Clayton Act just says the FTC has to show that the deal may harm competition, not that it will. But that verbal slip wasn't determinative. And then on Friday, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal agreed with her reasoning and rejected the FTC's appeal to pause her decision. Across the Atlantic, the Competition and Markets Authority. They had objected to the deal. But last week, they said, you know, we're open to a proposal that would address our concerns. And so the two, Microsoft and CMA, appear to be negotiating even as we speak. And on Sunday, Microsoft signed a binding agreement to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation following the acquisition Microsoft's already signed these kind of 10-year licenses for Activision games with other companies, including Nintendo. And this unusually long license period suggests that Microsoft indeed intends to keep Activision's games widely available. And Sony's acceptance of this deal, which they had not accepted up to now, I think means that it's recognized the handwriting on the wall and it's trying to grab the best deal it can in the absence of antitrust action. Now, maybe the CMA is going to you know, make this a 10-year license agreement a condition of the merger rather than a voluntary business ar- arrangement, but it looks as though they're going to approve it as well. 
Now, the FTC could continue with its trial before the administrative law judge. That's scheduled to begin on August 2nd. I don't think it's likely they'll do that. That court really has no power to halt the merger. So they'll probably end their attempt to stop it. I think the merger is likely to close. I mean, maybe even before the July 18th termination date, which is which is tomorrow. Uh, Microsoft had an agreement with Activision to close by tomorrow, or it has to pay a $3 billion breakup fee. So that's that's what's happened. I think ballgame's over. I think the, the merger goes through. All right. So Brad Smith, who I think has to get credit for having to help shape the strategy here, has triumphed. Or maybe the FTC just overplayed its hand, because it looks as though that's what they're doing in this new investigation that they've opened up, Maury, into ChatGPT. What is it that they are investigating ChatGPT and OpenAI for? Well, a bit of everything. The 20-page civil investigative demand from the FTC to OpenAI leaked right before Lena Khan's testimony last week, presumably leaked by somebody who wanted to make it a little more difficult for her. And it is a very detailed demand covering their practices for selling large language models, specific questions about both production of false information and sharing of real accurate personal information safety challenges, a bug they've had, and much more. So Lena Khan may have overplayed her hand on the Microsoft Activision transaction, but she's not backing off in terms of aggressiveness. I mean, there's no specific action targeted here. And Sam Altman has said, you know, OpenAI is going to play ball. But clearly the FTC is, they're gathering facts that could lead to all kinds of theories. Yeah, OpenAI, it has shown signs of dominating the industry, but it's such a brand new company that it's a little weird. I guess the FTC would say, this is the time when we have to act, because if we wait until they've got more lawyers than God, uh, we won't be able to beat them. But some of their theories that they were investigating, you know, your model is producing libelous statements about individuals, and we think that's a matter of consumer protection. I'm really having trouble with that idea. Well, we've seen over the last maybe 10 years that the FTC has really become the country's privacy regulator. Pretty much the same way, just by saying, hey, who else, who else is going to do it? We don't have to have any language that authorizes us to do it. But they did it in part by saying that is consumer protection. We're protecting consumers' privacy. I don't see how you're protecting consumers when you're worried about libelous statements from hallucinating AI. Well, that's deception. That can, that's, that's a form of consumer protection. Yeah. Oh, I mean, okay. I, it, although, you know, whether it's deceiving consumers is a open question, unless you just say anybody who uses it is a consumer. Well, there's a lot of deception going on by the hallucinations of chat GPT. Hopefully we will all eventually learn that we better be skeptical about what LLMs say. But at this point, there's a lot of people out there. I don't think it's a crazy theory compared to a lot of the other theories that the FTC has pursued in the name of online consumer protection in recent years. Well, there's a low bar. Okay, last, the uh, ChatGPT OpenAI deal with Associated Press. That actually sounded to me like that was a pretty smart thing that OpenAI did. Mark? I think it's smart on both sides. I mean, GPT access to the news archive of AP going back to 1985. And in, in return, AP gets access to the software 
to develop for whatever business purposes it wants. I think for ChatGPT, it's a hedge against copyright suits and, and maybe to some degree against this FTC investigation. And it gives them access to fact-based news, and that might help them avoid some of the misinformation and hallucinations we were just talking about. For AP, it gives them the ability to explore a, you know, a nice new piece of software for its business. Maybe they'll use it to compose initial drafts of news stories, something that they don't do right now. I don't know if the deal contains any exclusivity terms that would restrict AP. I mean, can AP license its copyrighted material to other generative software companies and receive in return access to their software? The terms of the deal weren't disclosed, so I I just don't know. AP is in a pretty strong position in the news market. Uh, Other news organizations might not be so so strong, but this deal might be a good model for other companies when they are both potential users of the technology and sources of data for training it. And we'll have to see if other companies follow suit. The other thing that's really important about this AI is that it gives them low baseline uh, steel of information that one of the big problems with training machine learning systems is the known as Habsburg AI syndrome, that if you train on data that was generated by machine learning systems, the inbreeding makes it go completely crazy. And this gives them a large archive of clean text. I don't think it'll do much for the hallucination problem because the hallucination problem is fundamental to how those things work but it will be very important for them for training purposes to have known clean data that is not polluted by ChatGPT. Mark? That sounds right to me. It's exactly right. It's worth noting that anything that these companies can do to clean up their public reputation as a source of misinformation might be, might be helpful. Uh, and I think this is a step in that direction. All right. Well, speaking of cleaning up an industry's reputation, it's Nick Weaver on cryptocurrency. But Nick is after a steady stream of just disastrous stories for the crypto bros. There's a ruling in the Ripple case that had people celebrating in the streets and the market for a lot of cryptocurrency companies and especially exchanges bouncing up quite a bit. Uh, Nick, do you want to tell us what the court decided and whether they got it right? So what the court decided was that Ripple's business model is, I like to point out, a security fraud as their business, that nobody uses Ripple to do cross-border transfers. But that's what they they advertise, that it's for cross-border transfers, right? Yeah, but nobody uses it for that. So what Ripple has been doing is initially sold a billion dollars or so to sophisticated investors as an ICO. And then was dumping onto retail investors once the market had gotten established. The judicial holding in a motion for summary judgment on both sides was that the initial sales to the sophisticated investors was a blatant unregistered security. Because it was an investment contract, right? That was, I think, the theory. Right. That was an investment contract, clearly checking the Howey test. But that the programmatic sales to retail investors 
and the sales by Ripple insiders to retail investors was not the sale of an unregistered security because only 1% of the market sales were from Ripple and that somehow people who were buying the Ripple token were not expecting to gain from Ripple's behavior. It's a really weird decision. It's not crazy, completely inconsistent and policy weird. What the judge seems to have said is to have an investment contract. She didn't quite say this, but it boils down to this. If you want to say it's an investment contract, you've got to show that it's a contract with the company or the equivalent. She actually rejected that argument and then brought it back in the back door by saying. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's a really weird decision. And there've been a lot of good commentary from lawyers on the subject that are just basically, this is a WTF decision. Well, maybe so, but she is in the Southern District, right? Which is Manhattan and uh, a very widely respected court. I don't know that she's the God's gift to the Southern District, but she is a Southern District judge. And she held, this is not a security. And what that means for companies that are exchanges who've been all accused of selling unregistered securities, they get to say, hey, now we can sell this product because we have a judge saying it is not a security. First of all, they're not going to bet on that because it's definitely going to get an interlocutory appeal on both sides because right. Ripple at the same time lost enough that they have to fight it too. So there'll be a interlocutory appeal. And even high crypto positive lawyers like Preston Byrne are going, this is just a WTF decision. I, first, I, I think I saw that Coinbase has already put Ripple back on its exchange. So they are going to be betting on that. But I think... Well, uh, Coinbase is already betting on delay and hope for a change of law because that that's their business model. From- yeah, they can't live with the, the SEC's current view. And now they've got a good argument for why they shouldn't have to. But I do think what this says to me is that the securities laws and the definition of securities, unless you just say, hey, we're just going to rely on the SEC to tell us what a security is. And if they say it's a security, it's a security and we don't need to think about it again. And I don't think the courts are going to do that. If you don't do that, these definitions are not easy to actually apply to cryptocurrency. And if there's any room for ambiguity, you can design a cryptocurrency system that exploits that ambiguity to the max, which means I think that the strategy that cryptocurrency advocates have put forward, which is uh, let's just litigate this until the whole thing collapses into a muddle and Congress has to step in. Is, is not looking crazy. Or what really it is, is let's litigate it to the point where we can make sure that the corporate shield protects the insiders who did the dumping, because that's the other big part about the judge's decision is that the principles of Ripple who individually made millions of millions of dollars by taking the tokens they were given as employees and dumping them on retail are getting away with it. And that's the real problem, I think, is that the insiders basically, this is legalizing the A16Z stock fraud as a business. 
I recommend reading Anne Lipton's analysis because she's very neutral on this. She basically is a law professor in business law who wants nothing to do with cryptocurrency one way or the other. So her analysis of why this is weird, I think, is the best one I've read so far. It is weird. There's no doubt about it. I'm not sure the judge had a non-weird outcome she could have adopted, but it is bizarre to say, oh yeah, we're going to protect with the securities law, all these sophisticated investors, but uh, the retail investors who showed up later to the party because they're unsophisticated, they didn't understand how this worked and therefore they didn't buy a security. It's just, it is bizarre. So we'll see a lot of, a lot and, of amicus briefs in the second circuit on this one. And it also requires holding that the retail investors were not actually expecting profit from Ripple's work. Well, interestingly, you're not giving the money to Ripple to spend in a way that will redound to your benefit. Except that 1% of the people were. That's well, okay. the thing. Okay, 1%. Yeah, 1% did. That right. 1% did, and 99% were to other speculators. Right. And that because you did not know whether you were giving your money to Ripple or not, you were not investing in Ripple. Right. Well, on that theory, you know, Microsoft stock is not a security either. I'll just wash trade. And it basically says that nothing is a security once it gets on the open market. And I'm going to make my wash trading bot that I'm going to run overseas do 99.99. So now the judge says, oh, whatever. It's, it's a weird decision. All right. Okay. Let's hear from Andy Greenberg about a particularly interesting flaw that was exploited by Chinese spies. It says a lot about both Chinese attackers and maybe Microsoft's security. Yeah, well, initially this news was released by Microsoft late at night on, I think, Tuesday night. And the kind of headline was 25 organizations' Outlook emails were compromised, including some U.S. government agencies. Very quickly, CNN reported that included the State Department and Commerce. And the U.S. government was eager to say both that they were the ones that found it first and told Microsoft and that it was very limited in terms of how many emails were stolen. But then when I looked at what Microsoft said had happened here, it seemed just much more alarming than that kind of brief description. I mean, 25 organizations is a lot to begin with. But then the way that this happened, according to Microsoft, was a kind of twofold breakdown of their authentication system for Outlook, basically, for their cloud. And the two problems were first, and of course, this is the big one, these Chinese spies appeared to have stolen a private key, a cryptographic key that can be used to create the tokens that give access to Outlook in the cloud. So, you know, when you log in and enter your credentials, you get a token that allows you to kind of come and go as you please for a little while before the token expires. So you don't have to enter your credentials and your second factor authentication and all that stuff every time you want to read your email. And these Chinese hackers appear to have stolen a key to create those tokens, but they stole a, such a key to forge tokens for consumer accounts and somehow also exploited a bug in Microsoft's authentication that allowed uh, these tokens to be forged with that key for enterprise accounts too. There was a problem where Microsoft was not actually checking uh, that the enterprise tokens were enterprise tokens. They could also be consumer ones and get past this. So get past their defenses. So that it was this kind of combination of things, but it's really the first of them. I mean, Microsoft says it's fixed that, that, that bug, 
But nonetheless, like you have yeah, to ask. But they, they haven't explained how they, they lost control of a signing key, right? Right. And even today, there was an update to this. And Microsoft still says they're investigating how that key was stolen, which means really they don't know or they don't want to say. So, and, and that to me is like this million dollar question. How did these Chinese spies steal a literal key to Microsoft's cloud kingdom? You know, that's a big, yeah. a big problem that that, is, that that key even exists, that it can be stolen or fabricated or, or, you know, however these hackers got it. Well, you made the point that we're all going to the cloud because we think the cloud is safer because we can rely on these big security con uh, cloud companies to protect our debt. And the way they protect it is with these signing keys. So if that's compromised, the whole reason to go to the cloud is at risk. Well, absolutely. And Microsoft, too, wants you to get rid of your on-premises you know, Microsoft Exchange server and move to their cloud-based infrastructure. And they tell you that that's much more secure. And it probably is, you know, for almost everybody. But then, yeah, you have to, you know, this kind of event just raises the question of like, are we, all, are we essentially putting all of our eggs in this one basket that has a kind of master key that can be stolen? And we don't still know like how much of a master key that was, like how many accounts could it actually get access to or forge tokens to get access to. But it seems like a lot. I mean, 25, um, and, and different agencies of the wow. government. Yeah, it is a worry. I kind of remember like 10 years ago, DigiNotar was a notarizing certificate authority in the Netherlands. They lost control of their signatures and the Iranians started faking the names of a bunch of companies so that they could intercept everybody. They could man in the middle, everybody in Iran who was trying to go to those places. And they were put out of business within two months. Well, I mean, it's not even like a, an analogy. I mean, Microsoft's literal certificate authority was probably compromised here somehow. Either, you know, it was hacked to steal the key or there was a problem in how they issue the key or issue tokens rather so that like it could be tricked into issuing, you know, valid signed tokens to the wrong people. So it is exactly the same thing again, but this time not a, you know, a company you never heard of before like the Genotar, but the actual Redmond giant that controls all of our email. So now the, the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, has subpoena authority if they decide that there should be a, what amounts to an air crash report about this. They can't ask for a lot of them, but they could say, we really want to know how this happened because it raises questions about uh, security for a lot of people. Right. I mean, I think I don't even know if they would have to invoke that kind of legal authority. Microsoft's relationship with the U.S. government. I mean, they're so intertwined yes, and, 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 and interdependent. And and I imagine that they are getting a lot of really difficult questions right now. And, you know, that they owe answers to some very important heads of agencies. Well, it, as the government pointed out, they had to find it. They had to discover this problem by themselves. And so it really does raise questions about why one, why Microsoft had the bug, two, why they lost control of the key, and three, why they still didn't know and had to be told by the customer. One thing that I think is important is that the detection was because of optional logging that Microsoft does anyway, but charges extra for people to have access to. Yes. And that'll be one more grievance that I suspect the U.S. government will have with Microsoft over this yeah, it's all really disturbing. I mean, Microsoft said today that they they know the full extent of the breach, that only these 25 organizations' emails were read. 
I don't know how they know that because, you know, if this key w- that can forge consumer tokens was stolen, it seems like it could have been used to access all kinds of consumer accounts, not to mention these 25 enterprise ones. I think the, the small number may reflect just how good it was. The, the Chinese attackers were probably thinking, let's not overuse this because it's so good. Well, I agree. I mean, that's you're, you're right that that's very often how these things work. That's how solar winds worked. It was a massive compromise that was used for like relatively surgical espionage. I mean, in a press call the other day about this, I guess it was just yesterday, the ASISA official was saying, please don't compare this to solar winds to all the reporters, because I think that they just don't want that kind of blow up. But to me, it seems very similar. I mean, it was a, a massive potential breach that was used in a pretty careful and conservative way you know, for espionage. All right, Maury, you know, if you worked for social media, being beaten up by folks in Brussels has become part of your job description. And so I'm guessing that Meta, when they launched Threads, must have taken particular satisfaction in deciding that they were not going to make it available inside the European Union. Yeah, well, the main conclusion I draw is that Mark Zuckerberg is confident of his odds in a cage fight with Elon Musk, but not with Margaretha Vestager. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, Elon is sort of, um, he's looking a little like his uh, cage fighting days are over. Yeah. Now, um, I don't know if Meta takes pleasure. I mean, the EU is a pretty sizable market. There are serious headwinds that they're facing in the EU. Three that I wrote down. One is at the beginning of July, there was an important European Court of Justice decision, which said the German competition regulators could take privacy yep. policies into concern and in, in dominance investigations, which changes the game a bit for Meta. There are provisions in the Digital Markets Act which allow special ad restrictions, which are relevant here. And also a key, a key point of threads is that you get your threads account through an Instagram account. And Facebook has gotten in trouble in the EU before for linking together its big properties, notably WhatsApp and Facebook. I think that trifecta is probably enough to say this ground is so hazardous where we're launching this big new venture and our big goal is to take down Twitter. Rest of world is enough for us for the moment rather than fighting EU battles. Yeah. It would be ironic if the EU is the last stand for Twitter and they have to decide whether they're just going to destroy that kind of messaging system in Europe or start being nicer to Elon. That'll be that'll be an interesting test. I guess I was astonished that the Wall Street Journal has this article today, I think, at how badly Europe's economy has performed in the last 10 years to the point where it is not inconceivable to just bail on the entire European Union. I think I saw estimates from Meta that it represented 10% of their advertising market. But what was really interesting is that before the 2008 financial crisis, the US and European GDPs were just about the same, about 15 trillion each. And today, Europe's GDP is right around 15 trillion. And the US GDP is 25 trillion. That is an enormous loss of relative economic power in Europe that makes things like what Meta did here kind of thinkable. Yeah. Look, I agree with you. So I sit in the UK. I was not in favor of Brexit. But I look around these days and I think being out of that extreme inflexibility and infighting that the EU has 
may turn out to be a pretty good thing for the UK, which is surging right now. I mean, the pound is coming back up and the UK economy, after really underperforming, is doing better. But all of the platforms that they're trying to penalize right now are US platforms. They've got no tech industry. I'm an AI guy. I'm looking now at the EU AI Act, which is like the destroy big AI business in the EU Act. I understand where they're coming from. I'm also, you know, kind of a lefty, uh, but it's terrible for industry and they're going to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I still like the title I gave to one of the podcast episodes in which I called it euthanasia because they, they're writing these laws and it's full of things that seem to be good for the local industry, but they are so heavily regulatory that it'll just slowly put them under until they can't compete anymore. That's uh, it's very sad, but that's Brussels for you. Okay. Let's go to Paris, uh, where the French police, not surprisingly, want to be able to spy on people through their cell phones. But I'm kind of astonished that they didn't already have this authority. Well, it requires a court order. And basically, it's to be able to turn on the camera or the microphone or the GPS. And they didn't. And they did not have authority, apparently, to turn all that stuff on. Apparently not. You know, I think it's probably, I'm not a criminal law expert or a civil law expert, but in civil law, you tend not to have authority unless it's expressly allowed. So I think maybe the courts just didn't have inherent authority to do this stuff by warrant and needed it. But it, it does suggest, you know, we've got the new data privacy framework now between the EU and the US, which has got an adequacy decision. And in this debate, there's all this talk about how aggressive US surveillance is, but there's plenty of examples of European surveillance in UK, France, Italy, elsewhere being just as extensive. More so. I like to quip that Brits have more rights against the NSA than they do the GCHQ. Yeah, you're right, Nick. It's more extensive. And I mean, the US constitutional protections are a break that doesn't exist in the UK or lots of places elsewhere in Europe. So now that we've got the framework, I mean, the framework is going to be challenged in court. But right now, all of those decisions that said you can't use Google Analytics, aren't they all kind of out the window because the privacy framework says the US is adequate so Google can take that data back to the US and use it? It will certainly be interpreted that way. And, you know, when the privacy shield was invalidated and they called into question the standard contractual clauses. They said that you had to do a surrounding kind of analysis to make sure that your particular transfer was appropriate under the standard contractual clauses. I think you're probably going to see some jurisprudence along those lines that you can't just say any transfer to the U.S. is okay if you're certified under the data privacy framework. But you ought to be able to make a lot more transfers than were possible before it. Yeah, I don't know. I think the U.S. bargained for complete freedom of transfer. And how would you say, I think you need to do a special analysis of a transfer to the U.S. because the European Union has said U.S. law is adequate? Yeah, well, that may be the case. Let's see how it plays out. All right. I think there will there will be challenges, as you said, and where exactly we'll come out is going to depend upon the... Max Schrems already has his lawsuit planned, yeah. uh, but I think it'll take the judicial system at least a year or two or three to get to the point where the uh, European Court of Justice is um, holding forth on adequacy. And I would say 
it's probably 50-50 that they might uphold this, maybe a little less than that, because they have shown such an unremitting hostility to the United States in that court. But there's certainly arguments that they should uphold at this time. So we'll see. Yeah, I think there's a good chance this one will be upheld, but far from certain. All right. Well, that all plays into Section 702, because that's what kicked this whole fuss off, um, 702 being the child of the intercepts that Snowden disclosed. Nick, what's new in 702? Well, first of all, I like to call it the NSA Paperwork Reduction Act, because it's really about reducing the burden on data acquisition. Nothing big has really... So do you want to spell that out? Because I agree with you. It turns out that when you talk to people about what's really wrong with getting rid of 702 or requiring a, uh, a warrant, it's that there are thousands of people overseas that we would like to collect intelligence on and getting warrants on every one of them using the FISA process in particular, which is very, very demanding, is almost impossible. It's like 40 or 50 pages of Yes. You know, crap. So this way they can just say, hey, here's a target. Oh, and let's change it to this target. And they just do it that fast. And critically, it's U.S. side collection of foreign intelligence on non-U.S. persons, every one of which you could get a FISA warrant on. It's just that's 50 pages of tedious paperwork versus click a checkbox. The real problem with 702 is that the data, once collected, is searchable by a lot more criteria. And so the FBI, whose mandate is domestic intelligence, or domestic counterintelligence and law enforcement, has this bad, bad habit of searching 702 acquired data on a far more frequent basis. Yeah, the problem here, as I see it, is that in an effort to persuade Congress that it should enable, continue with a 702 authority, the government has accepted restrictions on the FBI's ability to search 702 in the past and has imposed other ones as people complained about what the FBI had done. And then I frankly think that the government, the, the Justice Department, picked bad rules because the rules are almost incomprehensible, what you're allowed to do, what you can't do, and they they may not make good policy sense, but they are the rules. And FBI agents thinking they were doing the right thing screwed up over and over and over again. And that is being treated as deliberate violations of the law, which I think is wrong, but it's certainly the massive compliance errors. And in the current context where um, Republicans are deeply skeptical of the FBI in every respect, it has led to just a, a, an outburst of hostility to FBI searches that we have never seen before. And the hostility includes things that have been done with full FISA warrants. So the... Well, and as, as they should. I mean, the Carter Page thing was, a, it was like, it's six scandals in one. Yeah. The number one being, dude, of course you should be doing a counterintelligence investigation when you have all this smoke. And they did indeed uh, stop renewing the FISA warrants when they found out they weren't finding fire. Well, yes, although they were way, way late in doing that. Carter Page for almost a year, when it was pretty obvious after three or four months 
that uh, uh, there was nothing there and that there were a lot of problems with the uh, evidence that had been put, put forward. But in any case, what has happened is because of that, the FBI's use of 702 data may destroy the NSA's ability to collect it. So I'm hoping not. I think that I'm actually doing a fair amount pro bono on this. And my reading today is that there are not a lot of informed people in Congress who want to get rid of the 702 authority. There are plenty of informed people who would cripple the FBI's ability to search its part of the database, which is really only 3% of the database. And that, that would be bad, but it's not going to hurt NSA's use of it. I wouldn't necessarily think it's bad because the FBI's counterintelligence mission is counterintelligence in the U.S. They, by definition, their counterintelligence mission targets U.S. persons. And so for counterintelligence purposes, yes, it would be nice to search 702, but you can make a clean distinction 702 is not supposed to be used to target U.S. persons. Therefore, 702 data should not be used for U.S. person targeting counterintelligence without a separate FISA warrant. So we've never asked for a warrant to look at data that the U.S. government has already collected. And so it's a big step to say that. And it is not simply targeting people for counterintelligence purposes. If the president is having a meeting with a bunch of people and you want to know if any of them have ties to foreign terrorism, you ought to look in every database that might show that they have ties to foreign terrorists. And 702 would show that this person is actually in touch with a foreign intelligence target. Maybe he's talking to the Chinese intelligence service. Maybe he's talking to Al-Qaeda. But all of those are reasons to think maybe he shouldn't be invited to the meeting with the president. At the same time, there's the question, is that the role of a large domestic law enforcement slash counterintelligence agency? Or should that actually be the role of the foreign intelligence agency? Wow. I would say, if speaking as somebody who was at NSA for a while, the last thing they want is a kind of little bit of a keyhole into gathering information and being expected to gather information about Americans. That's how they have managed to stay out of trouble to the extent that they have. And only the FBI really has the authority to do that. And so we're saying you have the authority, but then we're going to make it almost impossible for you to do it. And it is a serious question, though. Where do you draw the line on searching data that was specifically collected against non-U.S. persons for the purpose of investigating U.S. persons. You're doing it because you have some reason to think there might be data there. In the current standard, you have to have some reason to believe that there will be information that you'll uh, get from doing this. Uh, uh, And they're clearly not doing that standard because they're doing way, way, way more searches. Those are all the mistakes because other people thought, well, I'm just checking to see if there's anything in there. And if there is, then we want to know it. So it all made some sense. Uh, except, Oh, here's a solution that would work. The search request is generated by the FBI. The search itself is conducted by the NSA, and the NSA bills the FBI for the cost of the search. We do that, and we <laughs> solve all the problems. 
because now the FBI will only search when they have a really good reason. This is an argument I used to make when I was representing telcos that were charging the government for their wiretaps. And everybody said, oh, well, you're profiteering off of the government's intrusion into my privacy. And I said, no, no, this is a, a very practical control on the government carrying out surveillance because it costs them money to do it. And they do not want to spend the money. And critically, it costs paperwork. Yes. <laughs> That's the other thing is paperwork is the biggest guardian of our civil liberties from the point of view of the FBI, NSA, etc. If it's a $10 charge per 702 search payable to the NSA from the FBI, the paperwork on that $10 search is enough to make sure that it will only happen when it really is needed. All right. We'll, we'll come back to this one for sure. Maury, you mentioned earlier that Amazon is challenging the EU content rules. Is there more that we had, uh, ought to talk about or are you done with that? Well, I would just, you know, when the EU designated very large online platforms who are subject to a host of additional obligations under the Digital Services Act, they designated them in April. They designated 17 platforms, of which 15 are U.S. platforms. There is Alibaba Marketplace and Zalando, which I think is German as the other two. And, you know, this, I guess, supports your long-term theme that there's anti-U.S. bias in this stuff. Amazon has said, we're not an information platform. We're a retailer. We're not the biggest retailer in any EU country and that we have fewer subscribers in any country than any retailer. Those are pretty good policy arguments. I don't think they carry much weight under the text of the Digital Services Act, which says if you have over 45 million monthly subscribers across the EU and you're an information company, then you fall within the, the net. Unless your information services are purely ancillary to your main services. And I don't think Amazon can say that. Their information services are pretty broad. So I think that they filed an EU general court claim trying to get out of this, but I don't think they have much of a chance from a legal perspective. So this means that what they think of as a single digital market across Europe, and the only company that is actually managing to take advantage of the single market is an American company. And the American company is competing with all these retailers in different countries that have online retail shops, but don't get to 45 million across all of Europe. So this, again, it's, it is a kind of hostility to the people who are actually, to my mind, carrying out EU policy of turning the continent into a single market. I agree. I mean, it's not just Amazon. You know, the list is Amazon, Apple, Booking.com, right. Facebook, Google, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, etc. And so I think the tragedy is that the EU has a policy that doesn't allow large digital companies to thrive within the EU. I think a lot of that GDP deficit, you're, you know, when you look at the top global shares now, they're all tech companies. And the EU hasn't been able to produce any of that value because of this problem. It's a shame. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay, Nick, let's return to this week and gloating over cryptocurrency <laughs> arrests and prosecutions because there were a whole bunch of them. And this is more your line of country. Yep. And thank God for the Pacer lawsuit settlement because my bills are racking up. <laughs> so it's long been quipped that the proper regulator for the cryptocurrency space is the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice has really started waking up. So just a short roundup. 
the founder of Celsius, the unbank yourself cryptocurrency bank that lost a billion bucks worth of customer money and was basically running a Ponzi scheme, was arrested for wire fraud and basically running a Ponzi scheme and destroying a billion dollars worth of customer money. Cool. Yeah. Um, the uh, number two at Silk Road uh, was arrested several years ago and was finally sentenced to 20 years. He was smart. Well, he was arrested in Thailand, so he's just glad to be out of a Thai jail. Yeah, and apparently he fought extradition because he was in Thai jail for several years. Ugh. With time served, he'll be out in another decade. And it also shows why you plea, because... If Ross Ulbricht had pled, he probably could have got the similar deal. But no, he had to fight it because he's an idiot. Then there's the arrest of a Amazon security engineer for scamming a decentralized finance setup, Prema Finance, not to be confused with Cream Finance, because of course, there's all these same things. And what he did is he broke in, stole the cryptocurrency by manipulating oracles. So technically, it's all within the terms of a smart contract. And so is it really theft? But um, he gave back three quarters, basically, all but 1.5 million back to the DeFi project as a white hat bug bounty under the agreement that the DeFi project wouldn't try to seek prosecution. The DOJ prosecutes anyway. So all you crypto criminals listening in, A, don't Google search for white collar cryptocurrency defense attorneys because that will end up in the court filings. <laughs> and B, just keep all the money because doing this white hat negotiation business won't stop the DOJ from coming after you. In foreign news, uh, a cryptocurrency bridge that went down under mysterious circumstances, it turns out the founder was arrested by the Chinese officials and all the money disappeared. And some of it got recovered by his sister who has since been arrested and that money has disappeared too. All these decentralized systems usually aren't decentralized. There's usually one or two people that you arrest and they can take all the money. And in the one to watch that hasn't reached the DOJ yet, but has reached the courts is the Winklevoy twins are suing the founder of Digital Currency Group which was running Genesis, another cryptocurrency lender that imploded and took a billion bucks worth of money with it, for uh, wire fraud. And the civil complaint reads like the DOJ's complaint that will be released in six months. So when Barry Silbert is arrested for wire fraud, you heard it here first. All right. Okay. That is a great roundup. Let's do two or three quick hits. Mark... Texas's ban on state use of TikTok got a lawsuit challenging it, saying it's a threat to academic freedom from one of these institutions that specializes in saying First Amendment, it's whatever is convenient for big business. At least that's how I read it. Uh <laughs> Except it's not big business. I mean, the key to the, it's the Knight First Amendment Foundation at, at Columbia. So uh, they're the lead on this. And the key to the argument is that the ban prevents researchers at Texas public universities from conducting research into the effects of TikTok, which 
is important to understand the effect on public discourse and society more generally. And of course, research is an, an especially important First Amendment area, the complaint says. And, and so the, the state has to show that its purpose in restricting research is urgent and its restriction is no more severe than necessary to achieve that purpose. The complaint doesn't go after the purpose. They say that's just fine. But Texas, they say, could achieve this goal in a different way. It could, for example, say to the researchers, here are some dedicated laptops available to you for research purposes. And and you can use this separate Wi-Fi network to operate those laptops for TikTok research purposes. Instead, it has a complete ban on doing that, and the researchers complain that that stifled their research. So it's, it's asking the courts to, to exempt researchers from the ban and, until they get that kind of access. You know, this is the same as other cases involving restrictions on TikTok and WeChat. I remember one court struck down the, an earlier Trump yeah. ban on WeChat, arguing that the ban wasn't narrowly tailored to the national security threat since a ban on government use would be perfectly sufficient. But, you know, I wonder how far courts are going to go in substituting their judgment for that of policymakers in deciding what's necessary to protect national security in this area. Yeah. We'll we'll just have to see as these cases proceed. And I got to say, the academic freedom BS is just maxed out. You You talk to any conservative about the importance of preserving academic freedom, and they'll just roll their eyes because we've seen wave after wave of universities saying, oh yeah, academic freedom doesn't mean you can question the pronouns policy here or whether diversity of views is more important than diversity of ethnic background. That doesn't come within academic freedom at all. So when they try to tell you academic freedom is something we all have a stake in, it's just a lie. And anything to pivot to the culture war, Stuart. Let's- Absolutely. <laughs> On this one, I really do think universities do not understand how badly they have damaged their standing with lots and lots of ordinary Americans to the point where these arguments just get laughed off. Well, we'll see if the courts still buy their traditional preference and deference to academic research. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. There's a big fight with that, with that in national security, but academic research is still a major First Amendment value. All right. Let me pick up three or four other stories. The White House has released the National Cybersecurity Strategic Implementation Plan, which sounds like something you just want to say nice things about as long as you don't have to read it. I actually did read it, and it is, I'm going to say nice things about it. It's, it is a whole bunch of one-page this is what we're going to do. This is who's in charge. And this is when we'll have it done on cybersecurity. I can't say they picked exactly the right things, but they were all plausible things that need to get done. And the discipline of having an implementation plan is enormously valuable in government in particular. So hats off to ONCD, the cybersecurity office that produced that. Unfortunately, the head, the acting director of ONCD is not going to be nominated. This is Kenda Waldron. This has emerged from the rumor mill that she was told she was not going to be nominated to be his head because she had too much debt. There are a lot of people who are saying, oh, really? You know, that seems a little weird. She's paying it off. So there are folks who who suspect 
that might have been an excuse just not to make her the permanent director. They've they've got a new guy from NSA that they're planning to put forward, but there probably is some story there. She's very talented. I, I kind of like her, so I'm sorry to see this happen. But it is also the case that when you create an office inside the White House where the director has to be proved by the Senate, uh, confirmed by the Senate, you are introducing a foreign body into the White House where every available antibody will be mustered to destroy it because no one trusts a director who is even a little bit in hock, uh, in debt to the Senate. And so I think this was a design flaw from the start. We can blame the Cybersecurity Commission that proposed it this way. They had their own reasons for doing it. But I think we're now seeing a playing out of the disadvantages of insisting on a confirmed leader for that office. And then finally, a last and but not least, a decision you would have heard a lot about if it had gone the other way, but now it got very little coverage. The D.C. Circuit said, hey, you know that FOSTA-SESTA sex trafficking law that everybody said was going to end the internet by cutting down on Section 230 immunity for people who offer sexually related speech? D.C. Circuit said, yeah, that's fine. They narrowed the law so that it doesn't really go after people who are accused of endorsing or encouraging sex trafficking. It's really services for sex traffickers. So maybe it will turn out that the people who are worried about the over-interpretation of that law will claim a victory. It seems to me that this also suggests that the people who are saying that FOSTA-SESTA was the end of free speech on the internet are probably wrong too. And that gets us at last to the end of this long episode. Thanks to Nick, to Mark, to Maury, and to Andy Greenberg for being part of this. I want to give special thanks over the last couple of years to Mark Chernozik, who has been our sound engineer and who is taking the bar in about two weeks and then joining the Orange County District Attorney's Office, which means that he'll be making too much money and working too hard to help us out in the future. So this and the next episode, which will be our last before we go on break uh, will be his swan song. And Mark, thank you so much for all you've done to make this successful and to make our sometimes incoherent remarks apparently coherent. And to listeners, send us your feedback to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a review. That would be great. This has been episode 468 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. I've always appreciated your delicate sense of humor about things. So. <laughs>